Hi, my name is Jersey Drozd, and this is who I am. My guest today is the cartoonist and teaching artist, Jersey Drozd. So, Jersey, thank you for joining me on the show. I am so excited to be here, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you are quite a, um, uh, old hat at podcasts and, um, uh, these kind of formats of shows. So it's, it's, it's nice to have someone that is actually one of the, the, uh, inspirations for me to actually do this on the show. Well, can I return the favor and say that you were a, uh, big influencer in my early days of doing this stuff in that, uh, I remember the very first shows that I recorded, my co-host Mark Rudolph and I, we just like took a USB headset and set it on a chair with the microphone pointing up and kind of <laughs> huddled around it. Mm. And then as soon as, as soon as we started doing it and getting a response, I was like, you know, we really ought to make the quality of this thing better. Like we didn't know anybody was going to show up and listen. And half of, we put it to the audience and I was like, half the audience said like, no, who cares? As long as the content's good, we don't care. And you were one guy who stepped in and said, no guys, audio quality really matters invest in it, <laughs> see what i mean and so we, in we invested in it a little bit and it was like oh yeah it actually sounds like proper radio when you get good equipment mm -hmm. yeah i feel which bad. makes a big difference it, it definitely does for me it's i mean I, I i hate to say it but it's i have stopped shows i've stopped listening to shows because it's that that tinny sound that is i can't do it right right like if if there's there's a threshold where like if the production quality gets in the way of receiving the message, then it just becomes if they're making you work to get to the content. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think it's similar in comics where it's like, yeah, I don't want every comic I read to have glossy pages. But if you make the art so impenetrable or if you make the process of, of acquiring your book so difficult, ugh, I got a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> It's a nice segue into the, the first uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about because you've been in comics for quite a while now, and you've been you've been uh, there working in comics for a lot of the changes that have happened in comics in terms of the format, the style, the uh, the delivery service, and stuff like that. Um, when did you first start working in in comics? Uh, okay, let's define working <laughs> <laughs> because. You know as well as I do that, like, working in comic... Well, okay, I'm going to go for the broadest uh, definition is somebody paid money to put my artwork in their product. Is that, mm -hmm. does that feel fair? Sure. Okay, because, like, I didn't get... I think I got 25 bucks for the story. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a lot of money, but um, that would be 1998, mm -hmm. I want to say. It was my first published work. It was for Antarctic Press's uh, summer special. That was like the first full issue that I penciled and co-wrote. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, before that, I, I had like a few little tiny things appear in their uh, annuals, like Gold Digger Annual and Ninja High School Annual. So mm -hmm. I was in my early to it was in my early 20s. Uh, and this would 98 would have been like right around the time of the Marvel bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was when um, I think they kind of collapsed under their own weight of the direct market and also there was because of that shift in the the quality of or not the quality that's a that's a poor choice of words but the 
the art, that house style of art that they were producing, the time dragged on so much, and I think they really kind of just fell into a hole that they couldn't get themselves out of, especially with the direct market. So, yeah. I, I remember that was a very scary time. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like I was talking with friends at that time, and we the the more or the less optimistic members of my circles were saying, like, you know, I don't know if this medium's going to be around in ten years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt that dire for a while because like it didn't seem like it didn't seem obvious that there was any way that comic books as a reading experience would make it into uh, any kind of mainstream, the real mainstream audiences, you know, like uh, all genders, <laughs> all walks of life, <laughs> yeah, uh, all ages, true, all ages. Right. But yeah. It, mm-hmm. it, it didn't seem like we had many options. And so like, well, without the direct market, what, what's going to happen? So, um, yeah. yeah, it's, who knew that we'd come out on this end where it really <laughs> feels like it, I don't want to say golden age, you know, um, lightly. Um, but it, it's feeling that way. It's mm-hmm. feeling like it's like really getting way better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There was a, another guest I had on was saying that they, they felt like the market had shrunk so much that the, not only were you losing people who were the consumers, the readers and the people that enjoyed it, but also you lost a couple of generations of creators and it's it feels like that that hole has, has finally been filled in now and that there yeah. are people out there that are actually enjoying making comics and enjoying reading them again. Yeah, and there's there's fewer instances of uh the the comparison with prose, right? Oh, well, mm-hmm. you have to real books. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm hearing that argument less and less. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, were you, were you doing your own little things before then or your own self published stuff or. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, when did you start Jamie? Uh, um, making your own, I guess 2009 I... maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, okay, I'd, so, I'd yeah. done stuff when I was younger and then I hit a stage. Um, gosh, this is in like 1989 or 90, probably 90. It was okay. around when like um, uh, Todd McFarlane and people like that were coming onto the scene. And I remember there yeah. was a moment where I just thought, I cannot draw. I, I can't. I'm not going <laughs> to be a comic book artist in any in any time in my near future. So I just stopped and I started doing more writing and I did a couple of like little prose things and then script writing and stuff like that. And then um, it wasn't until, you know, I had a couple of friends who were comic book artists and I'd spoken to them about doing projects and we'd map them out and we'd have have scripts and we'd have rough things mapped out. But um, apart from a couple of submissions to 2000 AD, I didn't really do anything comic based until quite late. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So like things were uh, beginning to be on the mend by like mm-hmm. 2009. Like it, we were getting positive signals at that point. The manga boom was over or not over, but it was like, it wasn't a boom anymore. And now it was just like sort of background radiation. Yeah. Um, and then we had all these young people who were growing up on manga beginning to make really interesting web comics too. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I started, started, this would have been 92, 1992. I had just graduated high school and I, I was, um, there's something, mm, let's see, I'm going to try to find a way to talk about this so as not to, I don't want to belittle my younger self because I, I get annoyed when people do that because it almost suggests that children are stupid, but I, I, there was a sense of 
braggadocio that only the truly ignorant could have mm-hmm. um, when I was 19. I was like, well, I could do this. How hard can it be? You know? Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I self-published my my first comic in like, I think, 93, end of 93 or early 94 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I actually, you know, went to a professional printer. I did flats and went through traditional distribution channels because it wasn't just diamond back then there was lots of others i think one of them was like friendly franks or something like that mm-hmm. and i was like whoo that was like a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> i was like i don't know if i can keep that up and, and still work a part-time job you know um so i switched to doing mini comics that i sold through the mail mm-hmm. um and i started my mailing list by actually going to the letter columns of print comics and they some issues would let the if you submitted your letter you could let them print your address yeah. or you gave them permission to print your address so i collected those addresses and sent free mini comics to all those people and said like hey if this if this is interesting to you just write me back mm-hmm. you know and some people did and that's how the the mailing list i uh, that's how i started it yeah and going to conventions yeah yeah, I, I I kind of feel um, as like a little sadness in me that I missed that whole mailing list and that that kind of very DIY moment in in comics that it felt like that really um, you know after um, uh, Dave Sim and, and people like that were working it felt like that really ended and that yeah yeah and I, I mean as awesome as print on demand is because mm-hmm. print on demand is I mean gosh what a game changer that is yeah. Um, but like there's like and I still make my own hand done mini comics because I really enjoy that uh, that visceral feeling of like, OK, I just stapled it. It's done. <laughs> I made it. I made the thing um, in the early days. I remember um, going to the copy store, the copy shop and like really playing with the settings on the copiers to try to get the maximum uh, value spectrum of my gray my grayscale. So I would like uh do ink washes on my covers of my mini comics to try to make them just like a little bit fancier. Mm-hmm. Um, and like going to like comics cartoonist gatherings in Michigan, um, and like sharing techniques with other, you know, mini comics makers, you know, I remember having a conversation with Matt Fizell. I don't know if you are familiar with Matt Fizell. He does, uh, like cynical man comics. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's a mini comics legend in Southeast Michigan. And I remember it, it was like this this uh, badge of courage when Matt leaned over. was like, how did you get the grayscale value? So such a wide amount of value on that cover. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm one of the big kids now. <laughs> <laughs> I have secrets to share. Did but you grow up in Michigan? Some, yeah, I did. I did. I grew up in central Michigan, mm-hmm. which uh, like if you here's what all Michiganders do. You hold up your right hand, look at your palm. I was right in the center of the palm. Right. Uh, now I'm down by, uh, the, the, where your thumb knuckle meets your wrist. I'm closer to that area. I'm just Mm -hmm. North of Toledo. Um, I grew up in central Michigan, lived in Arizona for five years in Phoenix. Um, and then did a short run in Texas for six months and then came back to Michigan, uh, to stay. I've been here ever since. Hmm. And was there, did you, uh, did you have like a, a good comic scene? during that time was it just that that it was because it was everywhere because they were in newsstands and because you could get them at drugstores but they were everywhere or was there like a sense that it was an underground thing there no i i i I went hunting for peers and i found the underground uh scene or the mini comic scene by just going to the um what was it called back it's still around it's the motor city comic con Mm -hmm. in uh novi michigan and uh because where i grew up i grew up in a town called beale city which 
is, oh, what was the last census? The last census was, I think they had like 250 people in the town. <laughs> it was, it was very, it's extremely rural. Yeah. Um, in, in, I have very fond memories of it. I mean, it's like the, the nice part is like you go outside at night and it is dead silent. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to watch Halley's Comet, man, live in that kind of area. Cause I got the, it was a glorious show when, when that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, um, when you're in a class of 25 kids and that's the whole class, the, the whole high school from K to 12 was about 200, 230 kids. Mm. Um, and you're really into comics. It's tough finding buddies to also be into comics with. I mean, like everybody read comics cause it was the eighties and comic like GI Joe comics were super popular cause they had TV commercials, but it wasn't like, it was tough to find the kids who were like, no, no, I really love comics. You know, I'm, I'm going to make these someday, you know? Yeah. Um, so where was I going with that? Um, oh, so yeah, when I got out of there, when I graduated high school later on, it's like, I almost was in quest. I, I was, I had to find my people. I had to find more people who felt this way that I feel about it. Cause I, I, I remember being on a date in high school and a lot of my cartoonist buddies are like, well, you're disqualified from being a comics nerd because you were dating in high school. <laughs> And like, well, you know, it's like some girls like to make their fathers mad. And I think that was what was going on in my case. Mm-hmm. But, um, she, she was like, get out, you know, you're talking about Spider-Man way too much, you know? <laughs> and like, not like, not like the nerdy kind of like, well, if you know the history of Spider-Man, I've got all the details. It was more like I'm was musing on the creative direction that they were heading in. And I was really wondering if this black costume thing was really going to stick around as long as they are suggesting that it's going to stick around or, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always hungry to be around people. I wanted, I had this vision in my head that I was going to find them and it was going to be all these guys with long white beards who are very kind and sweet and we're going to eat Frankenberry all the time and talk about panel layouts. <laughs> like that, that was literally the vision that I had as a child. I'm like, I'm going to find those people and they're going to be my friends. Hmm. So as soon as I was old enough, I started going to the Motor City Comic Con twice a year because they had one in the fall and one in the summer mm-hmm. and, uh, and started building a network there. And uh, yeah, were you tabling there or were you walking the floor? I did both. Um, most of the time I was tabling because in those days, in the early 90s, this would be like, yeah, 92, 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the the speculator market boom. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, where, you know, they're making five covers for every book. and <laughs> Every book relaunched with an issue one. And this is get, get in the ground floor. This could be worth a million bucks. And so, like, there's all this money coming into comics. And so the Motor City Comic Con got like really big, really fast. Mm-hmm. And for a few years, they offered artist alley tables for free. Oh, wow. Was, yeah, right. So like <laughs> you're, you're, you're 19 and you've met, you're making a bunch of mini comics and, you know, trying to find your way into this uh, industry. That was a great place to start. Nowadays, it's it's pretty uncommon to find a comic show where you can get a free table. But yeah. Yeah. It's, so yeah, I, there is there's like a there's a show there's several shows every weekend and it feels like the prices are going up on tables everywhere so yeah yeah i you know and as as a guy who you know uh, helps out with organizing a comic show i know that there are a lot of resources have to go into making these things these things uh happen mm-hmm. the case of the ann arbor comic arts festival which i work on like we do have free tables but only because we have this gigantic sponsor behind us called the Ann Arbor District Library. Mm-hmm. You know, but even like the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, they charge for tables and you look at that the the amount of resources that go into making that show happen. Yeah, they have to. They got 400 tablers there. Yeah. 
So, hmm. so when you were, when yeah, you were... it's it's it's. Go on. Go, ahead, Jimmy. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so when you were when you were tabling there, did you were you one of the people that stay at their table and and meet people, or were you often just getting out from behind the table and and spending more than you were making on on stuff? And <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm probably like, uh, half introvert, half extrovert when it comes to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, I, I love being at the table because I really want to, I, I want to be there. I want to be present for that opportunity where somebody connects with my work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but also it's really hard to stay behind the table when I know there's like, oh, there's these three exciting people over here who I, I just have to meet. I have to Rick Leonardi's over there and I have to tell Rick Leonardi how much his figures, you know, uh, informed my direction as an artist. and Like mm -hmm. how much I would pull over his work. Like when he drew Spider-Man, it was like, oh, that's how you draw Spider-Man. You know, yeah. I have to tell him that for, for whatever reason. He may, may or may not want to hear that from this guy, but <laughs> I need to get that off my chest, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so... But yeah, uh, I, I, I've almost never come out ahead when I table at a comic show <laughs> <laughs> for that reason. Uh, you know, it's like I'll, I could sell a lot of stuff, but it's like, oh, but I also bought all this stuff because I get very excited mm -hmm. when I see exciting work or people whose work I admire. Yeah. Um, so who were the, the people that were when you first started drawing and making your own things? Who were the people that were inspiring you? Um, Walt Simonson, mm -hmm. still. I'm still chasing Walt Simonson. Oh my gosh. Uh, the, the power that that guy can put into a page and like how he, he really gets the poetic aspect of visual storytelling. Like, mm -hmm. like it's, are all of these crazy crackling lines really there? Or is it just, he's just doing that to say like, Oh, you don't feel like this is powerful enough of a pose. Bam. Here's this extra thing, you know? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and his compositions and the way he defies traditional reading direction. And, Oh, he's so good. Um, and then, like I said, Rick Leonardi, uh, for all of the grace, his figures don't walk, they dance, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, like he could show somebody like just holding a hamburger and uh, you feel the weight of the hamburger and the, in the, in the, the, the slight lilt of the arm, um, you know, we're dealing with a static medium. So anytime you can make something suggest movement in a very subtle way, I get very excited about that. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see, it was Paris, Paris Collins was another one growing up, um, uh, I loved all the energy and the comedy he could, he could pull off on his characters' faces. Mm. Um, Keith Giffen was another big one when I was growing up. I, I really loved Giffen's ability to suggest more than show. Yeah. Uh, and I use it, I use his work in my classrooms a lot. Like he remember back in the nineties, especially like on his heckler run, he would do these nine panel grids for the whole book mm -hmm. and you never got an establishing shot, right? you, we'd get the intimation of a scene through all of his backgrounds and his camera angles or viewing angles. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love Giffen. Um, the, uh, Wendy Peeney was another one. Mm -hmm. uh, I really loved her artwork, uh, and her storytelling, Jim Starlin. Um, gosh. And then, and then, uh, like by the time the late nineties rolled around, I started reading more manga seriously and, uh, Matsutsuki Yamakami became a huge influence on my work. And as a matter of fact, if you look at, uh, the graphic novel I did back in 2007, um, the front rebirth, it's like, yeah, look at Thirsty Doyle's face. 
Yep. Now compare that to how Matsuzuki Yamakami drew Lupin. It's pretty similar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't homaging. I was I was like slavishly following because I was I was so blown away with that guy's stuff. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And because you were doing mainly mini comics, was there like uh, did you ever have a, a, a pull towards a longer format like the, the front rebirth or was that something that you, you had to push yourself to produce? Um, I was I did have to push myself. Yeah. Um, because I started doing in 1998 and 99, it was, it was, I, I had been working for an Arctic for a while. Um, but I didn't have my f- first mini series yet. I think I got my first mini series with them in 2002, but mm-hmm. so like 99, I was like, okay, I'm being published now. So now it's time for me to start like work on my serious work. I had to work on the, the thing that I'm going to be known for kind of thing. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm 24 and I know everything I need to know. Uh, <laughs> I've got all this life experience that needs to come out. Um, but I started working. I, I filled like eight notebooks full of all this world building. I did that one, Jamie. Have you ever done that one? Where oh, you, like, yeah. you do so much. Like, what was the one that you did all the world building on that, that you uh, overwhelmed yourself with? Um, I did it for... Um, I've done a lot of that with a hero code. I think I have more notebooks of, of backstory to that thing. than. But I you do. moved forward with it. You still delivered. Well, I do, but I feel like I'm hard. It's, it's tough with that one because I always feel like there's a lot of the stuff that I see happening now in some comics that are coming out where I think, oh man, it, it took me so long to get going that I'm now behind and it just looks like I'm kind of, regurgitating a lot of what's already come out but um Mm. um there was another one i did in fact that led to that which was i can't remember what i called it but this is going back to the 90s um when i when i still had the when i was with the the friends who were still creating stuff and i thought i'd uh i'd get it and it was um it was more like a teen titans version of the hero code so it was a lot more really kids in school yeah and there was an old grizzled figure. It was probably more like uh, Batman and the Outsiders, if I was being honest. If that's the the closest uh, uh, story style that I had coming, which was this old superhero that w- was coming along to teach the kids how to do it, and all these school kids were getting powers. But already, that sounds like fun. But now, my <laughs> follow up question is: How did it get bogged down with the world building? Like, um, it got bogged down because I started to. I had the first couple of images in my mind very clearly and I felt like that was great but there wasn't enough there so I started mapping out um, why why it would be why it would be different that superheroes would be in this world you know why mm. why it wasn't just a continuation why it wasn't just an accepted norm for that world and then i started to think about why they weren't there before and why they had this older character how he could have existed and then there was a big gap and then i started thinking about um whether or not it would be this is something i that that i think i have a lot in my work which is whether or not it's it's a fictional world that knows it's a fictional world or okay if we just uh if we're treating it like it's a real world and um and it's it's i think it's it's kind of hard. I think nowadays there's a lot more pressure on on creators to to make things to, to kind of explain things, and I think that's where a lot of the stories uh, fall apart in comics, where they over-explain or they they get tied down in trying to find trying, trying to justify what's actually happening in the book rather than just telling the story and letting the reader accept it. it. 
that's a big pain point for me mm-hmm. is it's like I've, I've been working on a pitch for so I've been I've been in and out on this uh, web comic series called Boulder and Fleet Adventures for Hire about mm-hmm. a bear and a bird who go on adventures um, where I'm, I'm just like channeling and celebrating everything I love about like the um, fantasy cartoons I grew up on as a child, but also trying to present like a positive deal with the notion of action and combat in a positive way. So it's not like, Oh, you know how you solve problems, son, you punch that guy until he stops moving. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, maybe we can make a hero who's like, because he's the strongest person in the room, he feels obliged to be the gentlest person in the room, which mm-hmm. is like why I love Superman, you know? Yeah. But anyway, I, I was working on a graphic novel treatment to pitch it around. And I was advised by so many people like, you need to tell the origin story. You really need to tell how these two characters came to be friends. And I'm like, yeah, but I've got this great story where they go into this underground fish kingdom. Like, tell the origin story. That's what people want. I'm like, is it? Because <laughs> well, I loved Spider-Man Homecoming. Part of the reason why is because we didn't have to go through that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely you, there in, in films at the moment is that every they, they feel like they have to explain who all these characters that have been around for 80 or 90 years, who they are and... <laughs> Yeah. And, and like, it's, I have a lot of friends who try to sell me on some television series that they're into and they're like, you got to stick around for seven episodes. Well, I'm already out because <laughs> I, I don't have that much time to gamble on, pardon the expression, to, to, <laughs> to like, you know, throw the dice on whether or not this show is going to grab me. Yeah. You know, it, it should, something should grab me from the start in order for me to stick around that long. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and the whole wait for it thing. I'm like, I don't want to wait for it. You know, <laughs> you, you're, you're putting on the show, put on a show. And, and I feel like that's my job as, as a cartoonist and teacher as well, is that I, I, in my classrooms, um, one of my, one of my points of pride at the time, it was not a point of pride, but now I use it as a point of pride. Um, a teacher in another classroom came into my classroom to yell at me in front of my students because my class was too loud and too boisterous. I'm like, well, doesn't that mean that they're having a good time? Doesn't that mean that they're actually like involved in what's happening? You know, it's like, there's no, nothing's getting broken, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, I feel an obligation to make this material as interesting for them as possible. And if I ever catch myself saying like, all right, everybody close your computers for a second and hold your hands up in the air while I talk, you know, yeah. um, I don't want to hold them hostage. And I feel the same obligation to my readers. It's like, well, if, if, if I board them, then that's on me, you know? I mean, yes, it's a two-way street, same with students, but I feel that responsibility. Yeah. Um, so to go back to your original thing about like, like having to establish some kind of reality, I feel like there's a fine line there between asking permission to tell a fanciful story and just telling a fanciful story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, well, here's all of the rationale I've worked about how this would work. And like, uh, I just, I, it's like, uh, you know, that scene in Stand By Me where the kids are all sitting around on the fire talking, trying to figure out what Goofy is in mm-hmm. Disney cartoons. Yeah. You know, it's like, Pluto's a dog, so what's Goofy? And, and like, there's that part where Vern's like, oh my gosh, that's weird. What is Goofy? I feel like that's the moment that we've all had where we go, how does Superman fly? Yeah. And like, the moment you ask that question, if, if, at least if you're in the conversation with me, I, I feel like that's where you've lost sight of the poetry yeah. of the thing. Right? It's like, uh, Joseph Campbell, does, in one of his talks, talks about like, yeah, he's talking about like religion and specifically he says like if you go up to somebody and say, oh, you are a rose, you are a swan. And if they say make up your mind, you're talking to a theologian, right? <laughs> because they, they, they can't grasp the the uh, uh, I want to say uh, transcendent nature of the language that you're talking about. It's pointing to something else than the here and now. And I feel like 
really good superhero stories in particular, they do that really well. Um, mm-hmm. But if we stop and say, well, how did Batman's spine not get broken when he smashed through that wall? Well, okay, well, now we've just broken the, the poetry of the moment. Yeah. We've asked them to make up their minds. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I've noticed there's uh, in film there's a definite and, and in TV there's a definite um, th- th- a reliance on, on that that explaining the world that you're in. And there's there's a couple of filmmakers um, who do a very good job of starting a movie and within the first 10 minutes they will establish the rules of that universe. And mm-hmm. it's almost as if they're saying, look, this is how it goes here. And if you're along that's fine. If you're not interested, you can leave now. And, and yeah. I think there's, there's, there's definitely, we need more of that in, in comics for sure. I agree. I agree. I feel like we're still suffering from some reverberations of making them real literature. It's like, we know that now. We've got mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. That, that 1980, whenever it was, 86 was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, and, and like, that's like a whole, other, I, one of the, um, Forgive me, Jamie. I'm going to be a cartoonist and I'm going to like talk about my books on your podcast mm, because that's what we're it. supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a book coming out in June. Uh, worked on it with my wife. It's called Science Comics Rockets. It's from First Second Publishing and it's about the history and science of rockets. And it's a nonfiction book where we're dealing with a lot of history and a lot of explaining scientific principles like how do rockets go, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And very early on, Anne and I sat down and said, like, let's see if we can do this without using a single caption box because like that would be the natural inclination, right? Mm. Show the cross section of a rocket motor and have a bunch of caption boxes explaining the different principles at work. Now, this is, this is kind of a thing I've been kind of ranting about on my own private, uh, Patreon podcast is I feel like Alan Moore and Frank Miller both like really popularized the caption box. But if you look at the places where they did it, they were using it. it I think in an optimal way, mm-hmm. like you think of like in Watchmen, the scene with the Black Freighter comic where the kids reading the Black Freighter comic and we're kind of like the, the caption boxes are from the Black Freighter comic, but they're being overlaid over scenes that are in the here and now and reminiscent of what the kid is reading. Yeah. Right. That dissonance was purposeful. Uh, and I think that was a very effective use of it. But I think caption boxes then started getting used a lot as interior, uh, like uh, in, interior thought, mm-hmm. right? Interior dialogue. So the dialogue in somebody's head. Um, is, is a replacement for word balloon or uh, thought balloons. Yeah. And I feel like the caption box by its nature is separate from what's happening inside the panel. There's a, there's a, a bit of a distance. It's not totally separate, but there's a dissonance that happens there that whereas the word balloon and the thought balloon are immediate, they're happening now as the person's experiencing it. Right. Yeah. It's the difference between in, um, house of cards, when Kevin Spacey's character turns to the camera and talks to you versus talking to somebody else. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's, I, I don't hate caption boxes, but I think that they, I, I wanted to see if we could do a nonfiction comic that felt even more comic booky than what it should feel like in that there's always the, all the information is delivered through dialogue and thought balloons, the entire book. And we pulled it off and I was really, really grateful that we, we found so many different solutions to, you know, diagramming a rocket by having characters actually talk about it or having like the different scientists who are working on the rockets talk about it and playing with that flexibility of reality where you can have Robert Goddard throwing down his rocket plans on his table and being in 1920, whatever, but having characters from our time interacting with him 
in his own real time, but then turning to us and interacting with us in our time. And it, I think it feels seamless. We'll mm-hmm. see what the readers think that comes out. But anyway, it's, uh, it's that, I feel like that whole, like, I remember in, um, like 2000, 2003, there was this movement of like the, the wide panel comics, right? Mm-hmm. Three, three stacked horizontal panels with lots of caption boxes. And everybody would say, well, it feels more cinematic that way. It makes it feel like more <laughs> like the literature. Like, well, yeah, or we could celebrate what makes comics better than those things. That would be cool, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, a, I, I, especially with the, the cinematic movement, there was a, a feeling of, like, that's, that has led to where the films are now. And um, the Marvel Universe feels very um, Mark Miller-inspired or um, the Marvel Ultimates line-inspired. Mm-hmm. But it's undermined what comics are quite a lot. And it's kind of that they're being held back by by a lot and i feel like there's some creators who who write bigger than than the film comics are and they've been kind of pushed to the side in a lot of ways dan slot i feel like kind of captures a lot of what makes like fun comics Mm. uh, like i shouldn't say that i should say comic booky comics feel like comic books like i remember it's been a while since i haven't read of any of his recent stuff but i he did a Spider-Man Human Torch crossover yeah. collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was called I'm a Stupid. And I, I just thought it was absolutely delightful. It was so much fun to read. And it felt like it took advantage of a lot of the things that comics does especially well. Yeah. You know, and it, I, I, I feel like this is something that it, it easily can be misunderstood to be a contest. And I don't think it is a contest. I think it's that film and moving media does wonderful, wonderful things that comics could never, ever do. Mm-hmm. Um, and comics does things that are very unique to its art form. Like, you know, when you can capture a moment that suggests before, during and after all in one moment yeah. and sort of stretch that sense of how time works in comics. And again, it's that poetry aspect that I get really excited about. Yeah. Um, like, and then books can do stuff that comics can't do. Like I was reading a book where there was a character, it was like from a series and in the third book, a character from the first book shows up under a different name. Mm-hmm. And when the character says what their real name is, it's like this big gasp reveal. Yeah. Right. Cause you can't see him. Yeah. But if it was a comic or a film, if it's Patrick Stewart in, in movie one and he apparently dies and he comes back in movie three under a different name, we're like, well, wait a second. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's uh what was that movie? Uh, Sleuth. That's the only time I think that, they effectively did that where they had um, uh, it was Michael Caine and uh, Lawrence Olivier and Michael. Oh, Caine. I've never seen that. Oh, it's, they it's, pulled that off. Yeah, they pulled it off and it's pretty great. Um, I've probably spoiled it for you now, but <laughs> it's, it's basically just two people um, playing like mental chess with each other. And then there's a, a third person is introduced in the, the final act and it's they, they do a very good job. But it's worth watching. It's worth oh, even even if you if I have spoiled it, it's worth watching because it's great performances from both of them. But that's also a good example to bring up to show that yeah, actually, I'm sure there are instances where making comics more like movies is super effective, mm-hmm. right? Doing things that you wouldn't normally think would be good for that medium. I, I don't I don't want to like necessarily put everybody in their own bucket and say don't touch. Yeah, right? it should be informing and influencing one another. But um, I just there was a period where I felt like comics was racing too, too hard to be too many other things rather than celebrating what it is. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's changing for the better now. I feel like more as more and more educators, librarians, grown ups who actually put comics in the hands of kids are 
uh, growing fond of this medium, now we have that latitude to let it be what it what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and be, uh, kids are being exposed to so many other different styles of comic storytelling. I think there's there's definitely a shift in how uh, stories are told in in books, and that's definitely good to see. How are you how are you thinking about your upcoming projects with that regard? I mean, like in a um, a post direct market world where now there's Kickstarters. I mean, you just did the, like the, uh, department O collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, are you thinking more like longer, longer, longer stories or more, um, ambitious stories because of the delivery systems in place now? Yeah, I, I definitely am. There's a couple of things I'm actually, uh, uh, gonna try to do. One of them was, I was going to try to do, I, I think I, haven't done good serialized storytelling yet um it feels like every everything i've done has been produced as a a four or five part story and um i've kind of forced it into the traditional comic format um department o was slightly different because the page count was all over the place and i think the first issue was 33 pages and then 22 and then 35 or something like that so it was it was just telling the story as effectively as i could um, um, but I want to try to do, um, because of Comixology and the, the submit service they do, I want to try and do a 12 part, 12 page story and, Ooh. and try to have real, you know, that, that, um, cliffhanger ending and try to make it more like the, um, uh, flash golden serials or something like that from the fifties. Oh, fine. Um, and I uh, also want to do long form, lots of more, like actually have, um, not graphic novels, but they, they tell stories in that more like European style where it's, you know, an 80 page issue comes out every now and then. And it's, it's, it is what it is when it, when it's done. Yeah. Like, like what the first quote unquote graphic novels in the States were, right? Like when Marvel mm-hmm. was playing around with that giant, yeah. um, that what was, it was like, it was like, uh, 10 inches by 10 inches format almost. It was, it was much larger than a traditional comic book. Yeah, yeah. And it was the, uh, was it the Daredevil one? I can't remember what it was called, but I remember getting that. I can't even remember where I, I saw it, but it wasn't in a comic shop. I remember finding it in some very random place and just being... And it had uh, like a like a serif font. It was like a graphic novel. Yeah. And I remember as a kid being like, <laughs> oh, this is for real. I probably shouldn't be reading this. Uh, I had a Cloak and Dagger one. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I yeah. Think, I think that Larry Stroman worked on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, great. But speaking of serials, uh, can I tell you, a, 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 have you ever watched the Crimson Ghost serial? No, I haven't. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. The whole series is on there. And about 10 years ago, I started like really kind of, I don't want to say getting into, but I started watching a lot of Republic serials like the King of the Rocket Men and, mm-hmm. and Crimson Ghost. And I loved Crimson Ghost. And I mean, I grew up in the 80s, Indiana Jones fan and like learning that, oh, this was inspired by or informed by those Republic serials. I'm like, well, let me see the source material. And the Crimson Ghost is basically like it's crazy madman with a skull mask who has like this uh, bizarre scientific machine that can destroy electronic devices, like make them explode or something like that. Mm -hmm. I forget what the device is called, but it's like something like Cyclotron, that kind of naming that they did in the 1930s or 40s. Yeah. And the hero is like, athletic, good-looking science guy who works with the government, that kind of hero. Mm-hmm. He's got the fedora and the necktie. And I remember the moment where I was like, I was like, this is fun. But the moment I was like really on board was there's a scene where the bad guys are in like this office, per, like uh, rifling through files. 
and our hero opens the door casually, stops and sees them, and you don't see him jump. All you see is the next second he's in the air jumping over a desk and just pounding these guys, right? <laughs> and every episode ends with, like, he goes off a cliff and the car explodes. Did he survive? Come back tomorrow to find out. Or, like, you know, he falls out of a plane or he's, like, he's in the basement and the basement explodes. And, like, they always kill him at the end of every episode. But then, like, the next one is, like, they go back in time three minutes mm -hmm. to show how he got out of that situation. Yeah. So... I'm teaching a class, a uh, comics class to some uh, 12-year-olds, and this little little boy in my class is telling me how much he loves Indiana Jones. He just discovered Temple of Doom, and it's like it's his favorite movie in the whole world. And so I said, well, have you heard of The Crimson Ghost? And uh, he's, of course he hadn't, and so I started explaining the history and everything, and I'm like, yeah, you should check it out sometime. Well, I go to start working with the other kids. This was a, a digital drawing class, so I'm mm -hmm. teaching the kids, like, Clip Studio Paint. So I'm working with these other kids. I, I have my back to this kid. Little do I know, he's gone to YouTube right away. And then <laughs> as I'm helping another kid, he's like, Jersey, Jersey, get over here, get over here. Like with the urgency of somebody who just found, you know, like the the, the secret of existence, you know, mm -hmm. get over here now. I'm like, yeah, what, what's up, what's up? And I lean over and he has it paused. He hits play and it's the scene where the guy opens the door, sees the two bad guys across the room and leaps to the air. The kid's like, you don't even see him jump. <laughs> <laughs> And it was this moment where I was like, I, I felt like a really strong and powerful affection for this little person. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you're, you're going to be okay. You, you see the world the way I see the world. <laughs> but, but, um, it's like, it also was a reminder to me that this stuff isn't too old for anybody, right? Mm -hmm. It still no. connects and that kind of storytelling still connects with yeah. people, right? Yeah, definitely. But writing a 12 page story that's a toughie, right? Yeah, I'm st I'm working on the first chapter, um, and I think I'm on page eleven, and I'm desperately trying to cram <laughs> two pages of uh, exposition into one page at the moment. I'm just like, oh, I've got to get, I've got to have this big reveal at the end, the, the big cliffhanger, and I've also got to explain how it got there. And um, so, yeah, it's 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 a lot you'd think 12 pages oh that's easy i can just sit down and write 12 pages but it's it's taken me three months to <laughs> get there wow yeah no i i i've been working on this comic series for uh the city of chelsea in michigan where we deliver a, a new book to the to the school district and like they my job is to take issues that the school administration sees that grade level struggling with mm -hmm. like mean girls like uh, you know, not washing your hands, like for the second grade book. And I have to knit that together into, and they only have the budget to pay me for a 12 page story. So mm -hmm. it's like, I got to, I've got 11 characters, I've got a topic and I've got to somehow fit an exciting adventure. And they learn this lesson in a way where we're not turning to the camera saying, remember children, wash your hands. Cause then, you know, <laughs> they're out, right. The moment they feel like they're being like taught something or like, if, if any like didactics come into the picture, they're supposed to be, just be a fun adventure. Yeah. They should learn incidentally. Mm -hmm. And man, I sweat over those scripts. <laughs> <laughs> How do you fit that all in? Right. Um, and, and in a way that doesn't feel rushed. So you're not putting 12 panels on a page. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, have you, have you found any tricks yet with those first couple pages? Um, I've, uh, going back to the the caption thing, which is I and I would say this I I I'm one of those people who does hate the use of captions for uh, dialogue, and the mm. only time I I like it is when it's a a pre lap or a post lap from the previous scene, and it kind of you know that 
cute little thing where you have a phrase that leads in directly into the scene from the previous one. Oh, that, that's that's and that that uses it, I think, appropriately, because in that case, the caption box is separate and distant from the scene that we are looking at. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's from a different moment in time. Yeah. So it's really I'm, I'm trying to learn. And I think you were right when you mentioned um, Alan Moore and Frank Miller. I'm trying to learn that you can have images and the text be completely separate and have them tell two stories at once and using that technique to tie two scenes together in one but have the visuals be one scene and the the, the text be another scene is uh, to, to be fair to be fair i think that that asks a lot more of the reader with yeah. regard to decoding yeah. and i think that's why it feels more like literature mm-hmm. right because like when we think of literature we think of uh, Joyce, we think of yeah. Melville, right? Which are, th- those are not easy sit back Sunday reads, right? No. So I totally get it why somebody would say like, wow, this is what we should be doing. Cause this is like real literature. Sure. Absolutely. But that, that doesn't mean that we just appropriate this technique for every other technique. There no. are times where a thought balloon is perfectly le- serviceable and legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. So Exactly. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to play around with that to get more, real estate into the script than it was actually there um and there was i have got one <laughs> i've got one page that i think i was uh i was trying to get as many panels as i could in there um and be completely without any text and try to tell a story purely visually but not overload it and i think there's a couple of people who do that well um um uh tom uh Silari. I'm going to say his name mm-hmm. so badly. And uh, uh, Michelle Five, Michael Five, um, they both do really good jobs of using the visuals and the, the page layout to tell multiple stories within one page. Um, mm. um, I think Tom does a great job on, he did, did the, there was a, a Superpowers backup strip that he was doing in one of the Young Animals books that was going out by DC. Um, and he was he was saying that he was playing around with the number of panels he could fit in that he felt comfortable with before it just became absurd, but still told mm-hmm. the story. And um, I can't remember what the number was, but he got up to quite a high count, like 14 or 18 panels on a page, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but it's uh, but if you look at the page, it's still very clear what's happening. And um, um, in uh, Copra, um, uh, Michael did a, a great thing where he had a... It was an object that was being fired through a page and you followed the object to see like the, the, the single image I think had someone being hit. But if you looked at the object flying, you saw that it was someone throwing the thing, the thing hitting someone else, the thing bouncing off of something, the thing ricocheting somewhere else and then coming back to hit the guy. So you had the guy saying something. Oh, that's great! And then being hit by the, the thing. So it was, yeah, it was a, it's a great page. Um, I can't yeah. remember what issue. I think it's in issue one or two of Copper, which is definitely worth uh, looking at. But yeah, there's, there's definitely things you can do. I think that I don't feel um, as well versed in the, the visuals of comics than, than the whoever, whichever artist I'm working with or collaborating with. I don't feel like I have, I have the idea of a story, but I. Feel my, my take has always been that I'm telling them the story and then asking them to tell it back to me with their visuals. Um, so oh, that's 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 a really a very inclusive way to describe the process, right? Yeah. Um, it, 
<laughs> I, I, I will say I've never heard you say my artist, <laughs> <laughs> which I, you know, I've, I've said like, Oh, like my letterer or my colorist before, like, and I like quickly cover up my mouth, you know, because like, it, I don't mean it that way, but there is an implication, you know? Yeah. Especially in like, speaking of another period of comics history, there was that period where it was like, it was the age of the writer, mm-hmm. which I, I don't begrudge every person who contributes to the making of comics narrative should be celebrated colorists yeah. and letterists, right? Or letterers like John Workman, one of the greatest comics talents of all time. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, I don't begrudge them that, but there was this period where it was kind of like, uh, well, th- this is my artist. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know? Uh, but it, it is like, having worked with, I worked with Dan Michigan on the, the Warren commission report. And like, there are a few pages that we're really, really proud of. And when we do book signings and talks about it, people ask like, well, who came up with what and this? And we're like, I don't know. We, neither of us remember, <laughs> you know? And, and cause like you, you're just trying not to drown when you're making the book after all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Dan even said, he said like, you know, when I work with an artist, I just, I, I feel like it, I'm asking them to help me, express the idea like i've got uh, here's the idea as i understand it help me make this into a thing yeah Um, it it is it's a partnership that way yeah definitely i think so it's it's definitely um you know it's kind of absurd that that argument still cycles up about who's the most important person in comics because you know there's and there's always like the you know it goes to the suddenly the writer is the, the person that comes up with the idea or the artist is the person who visualizes the idea or the color and it goes back and forth. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's, it's a collaboration. It's everybody's involved. And then you always get the, the person who's like, Oh, the reader is the most important. And it's like, yeah, the reader's involved, but yep. that's a very, you know, every, every reader should have a personal experience with a book. Every reader should have something that they take from it that maybe no one else is getting or that is, is stronger for them than for other people. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's a perfectly understandable assumption given that we're still reeling from the industrial revolution. Like our school system is still based largely on this idea of assembly line yeah. making things happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. It, it, it's it's a nice, easy, concrete way to think about how stuff is made. And like, hey, I'm a big fan of think shows like Unwrapped and how it's made. You know, like Junior Mints. Who knew that's how they were put together? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Like, and it always features these machines that have these different steps and there's a procedure involved. And so like, yeah, procedure is a really nice way to wrap your mind around the narrative of a thing. But it's until you actually make it for yourself or make something with other people, only then do you learn just how messy and intuitive and uh, subconscious a lot of this stuff is, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. There's moments where you turn to your collaborator and you just scream, ding, 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 ding. And you both know what that means. Like you just hit on exactly what you need to do, but you don't even have the words for what exactly is so great about what you just came across. Right. Yeah. Which I feel like is also a very comic booky thing. Like just pointing at somebody and screaming ding, ding, ding. Right. Cause like, it's so nonverbal, it's so visual yet it incorporates sound and it communicates something that is like abstract mm-hmm. and e- ephemeral. Um, but it's something we all experience. So, yeah, yeah that's definitely, uh, um, you know, there's, there's so much. I, 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 uh, Scott McCloud always is, is over-explained and, and explained and explained this stuff so much better than, than I think I ever will. But it's that I think where the world that we live in, most people are trained to read visual stories, 
and have so many things around them and so many um, things that comic books use affect and, and some of them use them very effectively to tell stories that they that you know not everyone can read not everyone um, wants to watch TV or can watch TV or can listen to TV but there are uh, there there are things in comics that are built into us from are walking around from day to day from things like you know seeing signs that give us warnings that that's that's dialogue that's like a, a caption that's right there in the, mm-hmm. in the real world or road signs or even like a exits in the directional maps for exits and stuff like that they're all all these things are built in for people who, who can can read comics visually and and can uh, and why are why are yield signs triangles yeah and stop signs octagons right um and why are road signs like directional signs have rounded corners and not square corners yeah so there's all, there's all these rules that are built into the real world that, that bleed over into comics and 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 i think that's there there is like a universality that that comes from that, that when collaborators understand that there are things that that do these storytelling techniques that, that use these storytelling techniques well then the language that they use between themselves becomes easier to to use to enable them to tell a story that can can bring it all together and yeah yeah and i think i think having that that deep deep um having that level of knowledge and that maybe level of awareness maybe it's an attention thing maybe that's what i'm thinking of it's like having this attentiveness to looking for opportunities to celebrate that, that kind of mechanics in your storytelling like how can we do this as only comics can do it? Um, you know, like a lot of people talk about in interviews, they say like, well, you should have no ego when you're collaborating with somebody and you really should be committed to the project. Well, sure. <laughs> but that's also very abstract. And try to explain that to somebody who's 17, who's never worked with somebody else outside of a school project that went miserable, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the thing I try to point to is like, if you're both after making this as good a comics as possible and looking to celebrate those wonderful comic booky types of moments and techniques, I think that quest alone diminishes the ego on its own without you having to say, I'm going to diminish my ego today. Yeah. So, and I know when I've worked with collaborators on projects and when they have pointed out like, well, maybe it'd be more comic booky. And I, and I, when I use that phrase, I want to be careful. I mean, I'm putting a lot of like sidebars in this, but <laughs> when I say comic bookie, I don't mean the way people traditionally mean bam, pow comics aren't for kids. Mm-hmm. You know, 1960s Batman show, as much as I love that show, you know, I'm not talking, I mean, comic bookie in the sense that it's availing itself of what comics does is exceptionally well. Yeah. And so when I've had a collaborator say like, well, wouldn't it be more comic bookie if we did it this way? I'll be, it, it doesn't even occur to me to be offended that mm-hmm. my approach was, was, uh, you know, shot down, not even shot down, just like more pointed out, pointed out to be less effective. It's like, Oh my gosh, you're right. Let's do it that way. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I, I make, I feel very mission driven when I make my comics mission driven to my audience and mission driven to the medium itself. And I think that that, um, that mediates a lot of that, that frustration for me yeah. whenever I'm working with somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know, and and also the the, the whole uh, ego thing is, uh, you look back at the there was that, you know, there was a lot of work for hire people in the sixties, uh, seventies, and eighties who were the, comic books wasn't their 
their field. It was just that they were illustrators that were hired to do comic mm-hmm. books, and a lot of them were in advertising, or they were designers, or they were doing other things. And they did. Inc- there was a lot of ego, you know. There was Stan Lee was around, and that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's like the living embodiment of ego in comics. Is and uh, we have our industry has no shortage of those yeah. characters, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Um, um, <laughs> definitely, but there's, there's always, if, if you do enough searching, you can always find the little, little things that someone inserts into a story that is their own little, their little personal touch that is like, even, even if it was something that they really didn't want to do, but they were doing it and it was mm-hmm. to the benefit of the story. And maybe, you know, maybe it was the, the writer's ego or, or something, but a lot of those books were under editorial control. So there was definitely a, it has to be done. It, this is how it has to be done for this reason kind of sense, especially in the 80s and when when you had a lot more books crossing over or you had um, editors that were in control of certain pockets within the, the mainstream uh, comic publishing world. Um, and they were like, you know, the, the person that was the X-Men guy or whatever. Um, I think you encountered a lot more editors that were were the egos then. And they were the person that was saying, this is how it has to be done. And Yeah, was, like... like- like Julia Schwartz, Schwartz's uh, mandate that the, uh, a cover needs a gorilla on it and yeah. the color purple because that helps boost sales, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just things like that. But then you have like a, a Keith Giffen suddenly has uh, Schwartz's head floating around for eternity, and you know, so there was there was ways that you could yeah, you could say yes, okay, you're you're in control, but this is this is how I'm going to get back at you, and there's. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! It's like it, it's uh, something I tell my students, you know, when they ask me which my favorite, which which are my favorite characters in this that I wrote or that that I wrote. I'm like, I'm like, well, I, you love them all, but bad guys typically tend to get favor with me because they get to say and do all the terrible things mm-hmm. that I would like to do, but don't allow myself <laughs> to do. You know? yeah. Um, that, that I am not above putting catharsis into my stories. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even Kirby did it with um, with Stanley. What was the character in New Gods that is? Uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, what was Flash it? Man it was or something? Or? Funky Flashman, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there, that is that is thinly veiled. Um, uh-huh. And then there's also in uh, the biography uh, Kirby King of Comics by Mark Evanier. They also talk about some Silver Surfer sequences where um, you like the dialogue if you like read it. And, and and know what Kirby was going through at the time with Marvel. It's like holy cow, he was talking right through that character. Mm-hmm. That 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 biography is so good, but it will make you angry at Stan Lee for like a full month. Yeah, it's it's a I, I, that's another thing with the the you know the, who is the most important person in comics argument comes around is the the pro anti Stan Lee thing, and it's such a hard thing because there's you know he was a product of his time. Yeah. There's a lot of issues now that are coming up, especially with like the the Me Too movement where he's behavior towards women in the office is probably not going to turn out to be great i don't know the full stories but there's always things that kind of percolate up but um mm. but there's like you know for every step he took forward like getting the creator's names credited in the books and making sure that they were taken care of there's like three steps back with that guy it's so hard to it's a, yeah it's such a shame because he was you know that he did co-create he did a lot of the early work but he also had his eye on Hollywood for most of the time and wanted to to extend way beyond what comics and what that universe was able to to cope with at the time. But he was there. And, he was. 
and you know, the devil's advocate also his like showmanship and his, uh, eagerness for the spotlight did help, you know, I mean, it, it, it I don't think you can argue very much that it, it did, that it didn't help propel Marvel comics to be what it became. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. And the whole thing of the, 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 uh, the contest between Marvel and DC was pretty much like he's, that was a product of him of his time. I was like, make my Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, you do need those people. You do need someone that's going to be loud and, and champion comics and talk about how great everything is and push their own thing. And, and, um, I think it's, you know, a product of the internet is that the pot gets stirred a little too quickly sometimes. And, and it does become very absurd. Sometimes the, the, uh, the things that are suddenly the argument of the day in comics are like, wow, really, we're going to, either we're going to do this again or wow, that person <laughs> believes that or it's, it's very quick to dissolve into that. And, you know, back in the, the eighties and nineties, you used to have to wait for, a, um, I can't remember what the book was called, but there was the, not comics illustrated, but there was like a, a, a very simple newsprint magazine that came out in, was the comics journal. It may have been the comics journal. Yeah. And you have to wait for that to see what the, what, like, <laughs> yeah. Peter David and, and whoever he was arguing with at that time, or John Byrne was was saying that was crazy that month. And, and you had a whole month to process it, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the part that that uh, and like uh, another thing I think about a lot whenever is like when the silly arguments roll around. Some not so silly, some very silly. But like when I think about the silly ones where somebody argues over who's more important, the artist or the writer, and then somebody rolls their eyes and says, "Not this again." And to which I say, well, you know what, though? Look at who's asking the question. Is it a 19-year-old who just started? Mm-hmm. You know what? That's a legit question for a 19-year-old. That is not a stupid question at all because they're they're coming at it from a, uh, an ex- worldview and a level of experience that is not well acquainted with, you know, everything that goes into this stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think... And then that kind of like in a world of hot takes, that doesn't service anybody when you do pylons with that kind of stuff. Now, there's certain things that you do want to pile on or at least like, you know, offer hot takes because it's uh, more egregious. Mm-hmm. But when it's a silly thing like that, it's like, hey, we, we could have like a little bit more patience here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely... I don't know. I, I, I get really. I get I get really uh, impatient with people who um, advertently or inadvertently give somebody a sour taste of the world of comics. Yeah. It's, it's in my opinion, it's done nothing but wonderful things. Um, but the overall, I shouldn't say that that was an absolute statement. It's done <laughs> so much positive stuff. Yeah. Overall. There yeah. we go. That, you know, let's, let's focus on that as much as we can and stamp out the injustice whenever it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with that. That's it. It kind of reminds me of like the, um, there was a couple of stores that we go to in London. And I remember, I'd be in there and it would be completely silent in there and people would be going through finding their books and, and then like a, a young kid would come in and it would get a little louder and the person who was running the store would just stare at them like, you can't be mm-hmm. in there, you shouldn't be in here, this is not the place mm-hmm. for you. And I remember, even back then, I remember looking at them thinking, what are you doing? This is someone who could, you know, get into comics, who could be a comic reader <laughs> And like more worried about how pristine that the just put a reader cover out, you know, put the books in bags and boards at the back, and then put out a copy that they can flick through that you don't care about if you're that worried about them. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's it's the uh, the bad guy from the Lego movie at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, don't don't touch my stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it becomes like that on the internet sometimes with the people that don't touch my stuff, or don't touch my ideas, or don't touch my opinion. And it's like, well, that's so funny. I mean, it's like it's like, are, are we really? Are we really facing such a shortage <laughs> <laughs> of stuff and ideas? Like, is it is it that rare? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like I'm I'm a I'm a big big Transformers fan. Um, always have been. Uh, like, actually, like worked on an RPG like adaptation of the Palladium system in high school with buddies to like play Transformers role playing. Right, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I've gone to Transformers conventions on purpose. You know. <laughs> And like the Michael Bay movies come out and I'm, and I see the first images. I'm like, that ain't my transformers, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it, and I, I knew I was not going to go see that movie. I, I'm not crazy about Michael Bay movies to begin with, but also like, Oh, that looks weird and, and awful. And what's, what's with this whole business with Shia LaBeouf. Um, and so like, you know, fans would say like other fans would say, well, well, you know, you can't, you can't diss it. I'm like, I'm not dissing it. I'm just not going to see it. I've yeah. got my transformers. I'm happy. And if, if these movies delight other people, good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, when, when, when did, I, I don't get the whole like definitive, like, and I didn't see man of steel because I felt once I heard what happens at man of steel at the end of man of steel, I was like, uh, not interested. Yeah. I still got my Superman comics. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing with that so is that, it's know, it's like there's other stupid. Yeah, there there's so many there there are so many ways of telling that character's story. It's not like you don't have to have the absolute edition. You don't have to have the. They they can all exist. Yeah, yeah, and it's that it's that scarcity mindset versus like open mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And and I get it that like not everybody's brains work the same way. Some people are more anxious by nature. Um, and you know, I, I have a tendency to really like novelty. And I think, I think if you were to put me on any kind of like openness to uh, anxiety spectrum, I would probably lean more towards openness, but, but at the same time, it's like, come on, stop, stop and think before you say something about it. Like in the days when we had the comics journal. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a, I, I noticed, um, and I think it's gone away now, which is kind of nice, but I noticed a couple of years back, going back to that idea of the scarcity thing, it felt like a lot of creators had this moment where they had not just, um, or not a scarcity of ideas, but they felt that there was a scarcity of of fans and of readership. And mm-hmm. everyone kind of um, circled the wagons and closed down on their own thing. And it became really... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, this is like 2013. It felt like this was happening where it felt like no one wanted to share other people's stuff or no one wanted to talk well of other people's stuff in case that chipped away at their readership or at their. Oh, oh man. I'm trying to think back to that time. Was this happening with like uh, direct market comics, or was this happening in like the indie scene where you and I were operating? It felt like it was it was in the yeah you know what it was it was in the indie scene, but it was that moment when it felt like Image opened their doors again, and suddenly everyone was mm-hmm. flooding towards Image because that became, and it was like a very small window where Image put out some great stuff. They put out. Um, um, that sounded wrong. I don't mean that image don't put out great stuff now. Um, <laughs> they, they put out like some really interesting, different, diverse books that were completely 
I, I can't remember the name of the um, the creators now. They put out the story with the sheriff, with his uh, pet bear or his mm. friend bear that would go on adventures, and it was it was great fun. Um, and they were put. They there was all these like young creators that were that had uh, because of print on demand coming becoming more available to them, suddenly were able to put out books, and they were going to a lot more conventions and. It was like a very oh, I know the book you're talking about. That was um, that was Reed Gunther by the right, Houghton yeah. Brothers. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it, it also was... uh, former Michiganders. They're now in L.A. working for uh, I think Cartoon Network. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there was that moment where um, suddenly everyone was like really excited about being a creator, and you'd go to a convention and you'd go to Artist Alley, and it was books after books, and people were putting out their own stuff, and you'd walk up and down. And I remember going to a few shows where. You know, I'd come out and I'd spent way over what I'd earned there. <laughs> and uh, like you were saying before. Um, and yeah, and then suddenly, I don't know if it just Image decided that they wanted to be more serious or that the everyone had, everyone had gone there and suddenly they, they could up their game a little bit. But it felt like they shut their door and then Marvel and DC were already on the verge of like shrinking down their their creative mm-hmm. force and and for a, for a little while there it just felt like suddenly everyone panicked and was like no I'm creating my own thing and you can't get in on this and you and your thing can't be anywhere near mine in case it takes the people away and so mm. I, think was, I think it was around 2013 or 14 if I remember correctly but it feels like we've come out of that now and it definitely feels like um, like you know for for a while there you would go to a show and there would be hardly any people with with books mm. in the artist alley you would go around and there would be a lot of prints there'd be a lot of um, there'd be a lot of artists there that were doing and it felt like a lot of people were were getting books signed and then sketches and i know a couple of artists that were doing great at shows where they would go there and they would you know they would be sketching for the entire weekend that they were at the show um but you'd see people who would put out their own stuff and talk to them and they'd be like no one's no one's coming by no one's reading no one's picking the stuff up and i think that um that that it was weird because it was also a time when um comics fandom felt like it was becoming more mainstream as well so there was like a weird uh shift in more people were coming to shows but it was people were worried that less people were coming to shows to read their stuff. I see. I see. Was this also around the same time when people were starting to complain about cosplayers at the shows? Yeah. Or was that later? No, that was, it was that, I think that was like at the back end of it. And suddenly, you know, a couple of people spoke up and said, no, I'm, I just sold a ton of stuff to someone dressed as this person and it was fine. (laughs) So I don't know what you complain about. And also there was like that, that kind of understanding that, well, that's part of the show. That's part of why people are experiencing it. It's not your show. It's not come and see right. me sell my book convention. It's people celebrating everything that's involved in this. So, right, right, yeah. And, and it, you're you're pointing to the fact that there's a lot more factors at work here than any one thing, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Because like I've I've been at shows where like one ro- kind of rotten actor kind of ruins it for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Like I was at one show where there was, I was around a corner and me and all the other artists who are around this corner, like you had to take a corner to get to us is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. But before you got to that corner, 
there was a guy who was really trying to do the hard sell. He was on the front other side of the table. So he was out in the aisle and he was mm-hmm. like getting in people's way. He was like stepping in front of them saying like, like, you know, you need to take this, you know, you need to take this free comic from me kind of thing. Mm. And so then when they got, when we saw it happen again and again, when the people, the attendees would get around that corner and be in our line of sight, they were just exhausted from their yeah. interaction with that person. So yeah. it just like, it bummed out the mood. Right. I get that. Like that, that can happen. But was that guy, well, maybe he was stealing some sales from me because <laughs> 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 they didn't stop by my table after that. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, am I competing with the person two tables down? I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've never bought that mentality. That doesn't, no. it doesn't register with me. No, that's um, like in the, uh, oh, they put me in the wrong spot mentality. And it's like, well, that's, oh, <laughs> well, I mean, in, in that one too, like I got, I once, uh, got put in, uh, a table next to a guy who was doing adult drawings of superheroes, mm. which is like, you know, more power to you, pal. That that's 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 the voice you want, and that's the the material that you're interested in making. Okay, yeah. but like, I'm like right next to him with a big sign that says "Kids Comics." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so like a lot of parents are like covering their kids' eyes as so they came by my table because oh, this guy's got drawings of Spider-Man doing things with with a uh, black cat. Yeah. Mm. Um. <laughs> so like th- th- that can I- I've gotten frustrated with that kind of thing in the past, but mm-hmm. like it's like. Also, it's like I know the dynamics of putting together a comic show is like really, really complex and, you know, you can't necessarily spot every potential conflict. But um, but on the other hand, it's like, yeah, it also it's like, OK, well, then how do I step up to address this? Yeah. How do I work with this? Um, you know, but it, it, at the very at the very least, I've never understood the, the, the nonsense of um or what I consider to be nonsense of thinking that I'm in competition for um, a discrete number of purchases at a show. Um, but also on the other hand, it's like, okay, here's where I can see all sides of this. I also know, you know, this you've tabled at shows. It is, it's hard to sit there and hope that somebody will talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's like, I would go through 28th grade dance mixers, but then have to like sit there at another comic show and hope that somebody thinks I'm pretty enough, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, that's really difficult and emotionally, um, draining. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. Um, so I get how like, you know, you might come on the other end of that and being like, God dang it. I, I only sold two books after all of that, you know? <laughs> And then, and now you're telling me that it's my fault that I didn't step up. Well, you know, that's the thing you have control over in this situation. Yeah. So how long have you been working on, on, uh, putting conventions together? When did that start? Oh, uh, 2009. So this is going to be the 10th year. Wow. It's not the 10th anniversary, but the 10th year. And that, that confuses me. I, <laughs> I don't know when we're supposed to celebrate next year in 2019. It's like, well, it's the 10th anniversary. Eh, probably. But yeah, we start, uh, started, it was originally called Kids Read Comics, mm-hmm. and um, it was a one-day event in Chelsea, Michigan, I think we had maybe 150 people show up for that thing, and now it's, um, you know, we don't we don't sell tickets, it's free to get into it, so we're going by, like, you know, estimations in, as far as attendance, but it's it's over the 5,000 mark, mm-hmm. uh, it, that's like a, you know, little ball estimate. Yeah. Um, and now it's a it's a two day weekend thing where cartoonists who it, we we changed the name to the Ann Arbor Comic Arts Festival a couple of years ago because we wanted to make it more inclusive to artists who make stuff that isn't just for kids. Because mm-hmm. um, we felt like when kids read when kids read comics started in two thousand nine, it felt like 
there's all this growth in comics and it's all wonderful, but there's nobody who's really championing books for young people. Yeah. Like who's making the books for to get the the young readers hooked on this medium as it were, you know, mm-hmm. and what did we have, we had like spider girl from Tom DeFalco and Ron friends. We had like, like I said, like the, the Spider-Man adventures comics that were being produced at the time. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't like DC. I don't think had anything. No, they definitely that I remember. Didn't. They, they had like a, the, the, um, the go line, I think, which had, um, was it called go? The one that had teen Titans and, uh, was oh, that yeah. around? Yeah. Then? That might not even have been back then. It might've been, it was, yeah. it was somewhere around, but it, it, it didn't feel like there was any, like we didn't have the graphic novel boom mm-hmm. of like scholastic and, uh, second quite yet like for a second was was chugging along and doing great stuff but it wasn't like any we didn't have graphics like when scholastic graphics came along with like raina telgemeier um mike mayhack kazu kibuishi it was like oh now this this battle is being won you know yeah um so that's why we changed the name it's like okay well now we don't have to specifically champion that as much although we still have a reputation for being a a uh, comic convention for people who make comics for young people, mm-hmm. but we have stuff that's like for teens and adults now too. So, yeah. um, and then the other advantage, the other like distinction we have is that the tables are free to the artists to, mm-hmm. you know, we, we jury it. So we have like an application period where we take in all the applications, we jury it and figure out who's good at table this year. And, um, we specifically look for artists who are willing to share their, their expertise, artists and writers to share their expertise in the form of some kind of hands-on workshop for young people. So the kids come to the show and they meet their, you know, their cartoonist idol or whoever they get the autograph, but then also they draw with that cartoonist, Mm. right? That's the, so like our eye is really on creating unforgettable experiences for young people. Mm -hmm. So last year, um, Zach Giolongo, um, who, of uh, the Star Wars Doodles books, um, and he also recently has a book coming out about DuckTales pretty soon, um, a DuckTales Doodle book, and he did a graphic novel called Broxo for, for a second years ago. Um, he does a, uh, a thing called The Iron Cartoonist where it's like a game show with three contestants and drawing pads, and like, you, you know, it, we packed the house. It was like, we, we people, uh, we had to kick people out of the room because it was just like the fire marshal was going to get us. <laughs> um, and, and it was uh, Raina Telgemeier versus, oh, who was the other contestant? Ben Hackey. And then the third contestant was a local teenager mm-hmm. who uh, is a local teen cartoonist. And she won fair and square. And it was r- so cool to see this kid, you know, being cheered on by like 80 people in the room after artistically conquering two of her childhood heroes. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of stuff that our show is really about. You know, um, it's it's about comics and it's about connecting you know, readers and young people with the medium in a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something that a lot of people uh, in comics now in the, in the indie scene, especially are learning that that is, that exists, you know, there for, for a while there, it felt like that had gone away that, that, that kind of small growth and that build in a fanship and building um, and, and finding people who, who not just championed you, but believed in what you were doing as a storyteller and, and, and wanted to celebrate what you were doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of, well, it's the, the shows like even like the, the more indie f- uh, friendly shows like TCAP are so big now. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. so big. And that, that's not a slight. Cause like, that's awesome. Cause it means like when you table at TCAP, you're going to have a lot of eyeballs pass in front of your table and they're all there to discover stuff. Like yeah. I sell way more at something like TCAF than I would at like a wizard world show. Right. Right. Yeah. 
because I'm not, you know, I'm not McFarlane famous, you know, <laughs> I'm not even, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not even like, you know, like, uh, early eighties McFarlane famous. Um, <laughs> But so like I count on people coming up because they just think the stuff is interesting, not because they're going, oh, Jersey Droz, thank God you're here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it, they're great, but they're so big. Right. So like uh, little shows like like a two calf, like um, Mice is another show I think of uh, that is scale wise. It's a little bit more manageable and mm-hmm. you can get those kind of intimate reactions um, with with readers and, and and with your peers, too, because you actually can chum around a little bit. But, um, but also it's like, I think something that the internet has kind of conditioned us when we see stories of internet, um, fan base building, it's conditioned us to assume timelines. Like, let me back up and say, like, I was one of those kids who like got really annoyed with like life having a schedule, like, okay, well you're 19 now you should have this figured out. You're 22. You should have that figured out. Mm -hmm. You know, you should, when you want to get a real job. Um, and, and I always think of stories of like L Frank Baum who wrote the wizard of Oz, like when he was 42 or whatever, Jack Kirby didn't really hit his stride on fantastic four until he was like, what, 44, 41, something mm-hmm. like that. And so it's like, there's evidence out there that you don't have, if, if you haven't hit your thing by X amount of time that you're done. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but now we have this narrative sometimes where, and I, this happened with uh, a younger friend of mine who grew up with the internet who said like, oh, it took me a really long time to build an audience for that book. It took like a year. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that is a long time. <laughs> but like we hear these stories, these people who like, you know, they they put some stuff on the internet and it goes viral or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, they do a Kickstarter, it gets like be like a staff pick or like a Kickstarter like spotlights it and it becomes a big deal. And that's cool that that can happen. Mm-hmm. but we shouldn't get hung up on that narrative because there's also lots of people who are just like crunching along for years and years, you know, bit by bit building their audience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, a different people are doing this for different reasons. And some people, some people are doing it to, um, as, as catharsis and putting stuff out yeah. to, to do it. And some people are putting stuff out because they are trying to use it as the stepping stones to something beyond, what they're doing and you know some people just uh, want to pull along and be happy and and you know slowly build their fan base or or not whatever they choose i i there was a documentary about they might be giants that came out a few years back mm-hmm. and they were talking about um john linnell one of the members of the band and they described him as if he wasn't doing this professionally he would be spending hours puttering in his basement making exactly the same music <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think there's, there's those of us who are doing it because we kind of have to, uh, Dan Mishkin once described it as kind of a sickness mm-hmm. and, and I think, I think he's not, he's not far off on that. And I, I don't say that with any kind of, uh, self pity or ennui. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a happy sickness. I'm glad to be afflicted by it. Yeah. But, um, uh, I, I, I don't know what else, what other way to express myself. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find your stuff or where would you like them to be looking for your stuff? Oh, is it plug time? It is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Um, 
So my the webcomic that I've been working on, and it hasn't updated in a little while, is called Boulder and Fleet. Mm-hmm. at boulderandfleet.com. It's probably the purest expression of what I want out of comics in terms of like, if you, especially if you go back in the archives, there's a story that I did uh, a while back called uh, mining for trouble. It's a full color story. There's also some black and white comics on there. Um, but it's like me exploring how can I play with the medium in fun and fun ways that don't interfere with the storytelling. How can I tell really exciting adventures without glorifying or glamorizing violence? And how can I tell a story where, we explore the nature of what makes us bad people, what makes us good people, but in a way that doesn't condemn or or um, uh, doesn't present bad people as someone we're supposed to hiss at, but someone we're supposed to um, showing that that leaving room for redemption isn't such a bad idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about this a lot with like characters, like well, I'm, I, I guess if we're at the end, it's it's safe that I can finally mention my affection for the character of He-Man from He-Man and the Masters <laughs> of the Universe, you know? Uh, and, like, one of the things, I actually did, Jamie, I did a talk about, like, why I love He-Man, like, at a church. <laughs> 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 and they invited me! <laughs> I'm like, wow, you really want me to talk about that? Because I will! It's mm-hmm. just that I'm, I'm surprised about the invitation. Um, but like I was talking about, like there's like all these scenes in the cartoon series where he saves the bad guy from themselves. You know, like Merman summons this giant water demon, and what always happens when you summon a demonic force, it like you you lose control of it, and then suddenly Merman's in trouble. He man risks his life to get Merman out of the fire, and Tila says, you know, it's like you risked everything to to save Merman. He's like all life, even an evil one, is worth saving. Why? Because it's not up to He Man to deliver justice in that. You know, mm-hmm. that if he does that, if he lets Merman get killed. He has removed Merman's chance to redeem himself. Yeah. Right? Like that's like as a kid, as a kid who grew up in a very rural area, rural in the 1980s, mind you. So this is still when like being a man meant stoically just sucking it up and pushing all your feelings down to your feet <laughs> until it's nothing but rage. And you solve your problems with frontier justice, my friend, you know, to be given that as a child was like super powerful to me like it it had a very very deep and lasting effect on me to Mm -hmm. to have that idea to puzzle through so that's something i like playing with with boulder and fleet um is that idea um and then the other one is like this june june 12th um science comics rockets comes out that's on amazon for pre-order now um if people want to check it out pay attention to my instagram stream at jersey droves i'm going to be doing a promo pre-order promo on that where uh, I might be giving away some kind of cool stuff to people who all pre-order on the same day to try to boost the Amazon numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is it? It's a, um, it's the history and science of how rockets work. But uh, the, the log line is Carl Sagan's cosmos as told by grumpy animals. <laughs> so just like how Carl Sagan explored scientific principles by telling stories of the people who ex- discovered those principles like Newton, like um, Johannes Kepler, we bring in all these different people from science history, like uh, Robert Goddard, like Mary Sherman Morgan, and we tell how they contributed to it and like what we know about rockets as a result of their efforts. But we also found stories of how animals were involved in all of these stories. So like, for instance, um, in our section on G-Force, um, there was this story of how the American government was tranquilizing grizzly bears and putting them in planes to eject them out to see what would happen to <laughs> 
suffering the massive deceleration of flying at supersonic speed and then suddenly ejected out. Mm-hmm. But then the, the bears all survived until they were euthanized and dissected. Hmm. Um, and so, like, our bear narrator gets to that part of the story, and he's like, I'm out! I'm not, I'm not <laughs> participating in this book anymore. And so then another narrator comes in, and now it's, you know, two Russian tortoises. Why? Because the first living creatures to orbit the moon were not the crew of Apollo 8. It was two Russian tortoises who flew up in Zond 5 two months before. Hmm. So things like that. Um, so it's it's for middle grade, but I'm hoping that it has enough Rocky and Bullwinkle-style humor to also be appealing to adults as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent, and you have uh, you have your Patreon and um... yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, Patreon.com/slash/Jersey, and um, I mostly post their um, in progress work about stuff I'm working on, and then I occasionally post little audio essays about like what I'm thinking about with re- relation to the work that I'm doing right now. Um, I, I try to frame them up as essays as best I can. So, as, so it's not just me you know, like, well, I ate some pickles and that was a bad idea. You know? <laughs> well, Jersey, thank you so much for, for spending your Saturday afternoon chatting with me. And, uh, um, it was, it was such a pleasure, Jamie. I love talking with you and I love listening to the show and I just, I'm so grateful that you're making it because, uh, I, I love the way you investigate ideas with people. It's great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, we could definitely do with more He-Men out there. So. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.